having a panic attack on camera live on ESPN and like somehow not passing out and getting through the stand up and then like having to go and change your shirt because you just your whole body is drenched and stage manager's like what's going on you're like oh, I'm, I'm cool and like <laughs> What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 35 of the Mad Happy Podcast. I'm Payman. And I'm Mason. And today we're joined by our friend, Salema Masakela. I guess where to begin? It's definitely a, a long episode for us, um, but a really good one. I remember we recorded this uh, just at the beginning of this new year. So he really brought a lot of just amazing stories and life experiences that he's had and, and the ups and downs that he's faced. And really really enjoyed having him on yeah definitely one of my favorite conversations we've had um according to Phineas, our producer literally our best episode of all time so we'll let you guys be the judge of that um really an impressive guy i mean i i didn't know much about him besides seeing him as as kind of the face of the x games growing up but just to be able to hear his story struggling with anxiety you know i think some aspects reminded me of the logic episode of like really going through mental health battles in the middle of a live performance or on live TV. I think to hear about some of those experiences uh, were really cool. Obviously his background and then everything that he's doing now with just Afro surf and, and his work at Burton and just continuing to be a pioneer really in the action sports space and, and really kind of the face of the black athlete in that space for a lot of sports that are predominantly white and black people don't really get the opportunity to partake in uh, or feel like they're allowed to participate. I feel like he's really trailblazing and a huge inspiration for so many people all over the world. The Mad Happy Podcast is brought to you by Optimism. Please enjoy the show with Salema Masakela. Today we are joined by a journalist, a reporter, uh, an athlete, a musician. You guys may recognize him as the face of the X Games or on ESPN, a bunch of stuff you've probably seen him. Uh, Salema Masakela is joining us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on this fine, when, it's Wednesday, on this fine Wednesday evening. Wednesday evening, yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of the people we have on the show, you know, there's so many ways to introduce them. Um, and I'm wondering for you how how you're thinking about yourself now when you introduce yourself to someone new. I'm a storyteller and I tell stories in a bunch of different places and directions. I've never limited myself to one avenue. So when I have my commentator hat on and I'm commentating, you know, a snowboard contest like natural selection with Travis Rice, I'm, I'm telling stories. If I'm at a surf contest, I'm telling stories. If I'm, you know, a skate contest, the same thing, like as much as I'm, there to commentate and tell you about the actionism there to give you a reason to care about what you're seeing and who's doing it you know when I switch hats and I go out and I do documentary storytelling you know where I go and spend 10 days in in Cuba or in Tanzania or South Africa like in an effort to to find stories that people can feel like they they can connect to a part of the world that they didn't know needed to care about because they, they can see something in common with those people I'm a storyteller. And when I go in the studio to, to write music um, as my alter ego, Alakazam, um, I'm mining my heart, you know, to, to tell stories. So, yeah, I'm, that's how I introduce myself is as a storyteller. 
question for both you guys off top. Uh, I know that it can be a little cheesy, but this is something that I just wanted to talk about. Like a New Year's resolution, I'm curious for both you guys, and, and I'll answer too, uh, any habit right now that you're trying to break or one that you're trying to build uh, starting off the year? I'll go, and then Salima, you could go next. Uh, Hit it, payment. I think, I, yeah, I think for me, um, I do think the New Year's a good time to like reset I've found for myself like I think a lot of the things towards the back end of the year that I know I want to start but I don't um, and I think the focus this year is like as we've continued to grow like the strain on other parts of my life has grown so I'd say like uh, especially on like the the working out and like physical health side of things I think I've been doing a good job last year like we've talked about with therapy and meditation some of those things but I think on the physical end being more consistent in the gym and eating well and doing things that like so I know support my body and are like the right long-term way to do it is is a big one for me this year so um yeah I hear you man like you what you're talking what payment's talking about like building building constructing new habits like I really don't like resolutions because we all know like them shits evaporate um, mm -hmm. by about mid-February, everyone gives it a real heave-ho till about mid-February, and they're like, ah, I'll see you next year. And I think that's the, 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 that, that pressure to stick to the thing. So for me, I've kind of cut out resolutions and set actionable, actionable um, uh, I, I, I ideas that I can carry across the landscape of my life. So for, for me, the, I picked three words this year, and that's to dare, to build, and to persist. Because those are areas that I can be shaky at, like the actual, the, the building part. Once, once the, the, the framework is built, I'm cool. I can add on and take away. But the actual, that like, all right, can I actually get this thing off the ground part? That requires being daring and taking chances, which sometimes, especially the older you get, you there is a part of your brain that starts to release a chemical that's like, be more comfortable. You're comfortable. Stop. Shh. Be safe. Be comfortable. Don't say too much. Um, you know, don't step outside of your lane. And then persistence. Like being sticking to a thing that I've that I've that I've chosen. Um, whether it be in how I show up in my relationship. I'm showing up for work. And so those are my three words for this year. Everyday affirmations. I'm trying to wear them and tattoo them to my, to my, to my psyche. It's to dare, to build, and to persist. Yeah, for me, um, it's a little uncomfortable to talk about, honestly. But uh, getting back into my 12-step program was like a big goal of mine. Uh, when I first got sober, like over three years ago, I was like so motivated and I was going to meetings every day and and I had a sponsor and I was meeting people and, and was really into it and then you know I I kind of use that as proof of I'm doing better I'm back on the horse I I work is going better my friendships my family I met a girl and like this time it, it's so much healthier and kind of all these things and mm -hmm. then I got to a point where I was feeling good and because I think I'm smarter than 
everyone else and that I can do it my way and figure it out, I gave myself the credit for getting to where I was and not the antidepressants or the recovery and like all these people and like other people's ways. So I'm like, all right, like now it's my way. And like, I got myself here so I can keep myself here. And it lasted for a bit, but I felt like it was kind of like a, a ticking time bomb and, and like over break, uh, definitely found myself kind of in, in some of those darker places again. And I've, uh, I've had like a on and off relationship with, with meetings and, and things like that, but it's kind of come up enough times where now I'm in a place where I know that it's just something that I need and something that I'll need for a long time, probably the rest of my life. And like, I'm, I'm kind of tired of feeling this feeling now of like, Oh, I'm back at this place again. Like now I got to get started and I want to just be able to build it into kind of my every day and just like a part of my life and, and not have to feel shame around it and just work it into an hour a day or four or five hours a week uh, and just kind of make it part of my routine because even I I went to one yesterday for the first time in a minute and I was just like wow that was so easy and I feel great and like what's the big deal so that's kind of my my new habit I'm trying to get back hey that ego is a that ego is something else right (laughs) hey yo you're you good you could you did you did all you (laughs) need to do you're not you're not like them yeah look look around you test yeah you beat the boss yeah yeah You, you graduated yeah. I've been that way with therapy and I got myself back into therapy about six months ago and I, I went, I was there today and it's funny. My manager called me when I got out of therapy and she's like, you, you sound amazing. I was like, you're <laughs> catching me fresh out of therapy. <laughs> Nothing can stop me for at least the next 48 hours. <laughs> but uh, I realized that I need that. I need to be able to look forward to it. I need to be able to to have that space where like no one's patting me on the back and is just holding a mirror up to me from all angles so that I I'm not the raddest person in the room and that I can continue to get better in relationship with myself. You know, like which you if you if you're doing it right, you want to do for the rest of your life. Like I, as you were just talking about, like you don't get to graduate as long as you're here, you never graduate. Yeah, and I'm curious, um, maybe through therapy you've learned it or in just thinking back, I think what we like to do is just like go back to your your childhood and like formative experiences in your life. Like when you think back to that, because I think you have like a unique upbringing, uh, are there like a few moments that you think impacted, you know, the rest of your life? And, and, and how do you think about that now? Sheesh. Now I'm on the couch. Um, I literally my test my session today was really on the couch. I was laughing. I was like, "This I'm, we I'm back gonna... on the couch." <laughs> um, you know, I grew up with a very I, I grew up trying to trying to figure out my my identity and like who I was allowed to be. My father was a prolific, incredible activist and musician, and was very very worldly um battled with substance but he like looked really cool doing it um my mother and stepfather my mother is a holistic health practitioner and also a jehovah's witness and my stepfather was like a hardcore jehovah's witness and so i was banging on doors on saturdays and sundays and telling people that they needed these magazines and to study the bible or that they were going to die and i was going to church like four or five times a week and so 
and I wasn't allowed to do pretty much anything that the kids were allowed to do. So this this dance that I did between the time that I was with my father, which was like, yo, I'm out in the cl- in the club and I'm touring with musicians and I'm seeing everything under the sun. I lived like a life. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Almost Famous, but when I was with my dad, that's what my life was. And then I'd go back mm-hmm. home and none of that existed, like at all. Um, and I, 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 I was trying to please everybody because that's as a kid, that's just what your default is. Like, well, please dad, please mom and stepdad, try not to get in trouble. And by the time I graduated high school and started getting into adulthood, I just had no idea like how to be me, how to choose for myself. And so it, it, it continues to mess with my belief that I'm allowed to, to have the best life possible. You know, like it, it continues to like whisper this weird uh, thing in my ear that oh, you don't, you don't, you don't get to do that. You don't get to deserve that. Um, and I think that was rather impactful and I didn't really learn how it was messing up my relationships or how I couldn't really make decisions or really stand up for myself until I got into my thirties, you know, that I really was like, why do I keep running into the same wall? Um, and it wasn't until like my mid to late thirties that, especially after a horrible breakup after seven years, that just like heart, I was talk about depression and, and choosing making all of the wrong tra- choices to try and make yourself feel better yeah but that was that was the one for me that and it, it like I said it one day you're sitting in a chair and you're talking about it with someone who's not in your family and not your friends and a light comes on and you're like oh mm. okay that actually is affecting me now damn <laughs> yeah. I guess they call yeah. them the formative years for a reason <laughs> yeah uh- yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. I was listening uh, maybe like two weeks ago to you on Rich's podcast, uh, and it's an amazing episode. And I feel like one thing you said there around being four or five years old and not even knowing that your dad was your dad, it was just like the music guy that was around or something of that variation. Yeah, I called him uncle. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I'm wondering like, how did that play a role? Because I think it seems like your dad played such a big role in your life, especially as you started growing up and going on tour with him. But I imagine it wasn't like the standard father-son relationship. And, and so uh, I feel like that would have made a big impact. It was huge. Um, it was really, really huge because I wanted to be him so bad, but I also couldn't. I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to. And my stepfather definitely wanted that role. He, he parented me in the hopes of one day I, me relinquishing um, any need for my actual father. And so the, the more the signs that showed up in me that I, indeed that's my dad, like the natural aptitude that I had towards music and entertaining, um, being super social and, um, wanting to act and all those things, the more those things like sprung up in me, the more he worked very, very hard to uh, at times actually like physically beat it out of me. And um, yeah, it was a trip, you know, like, yeah, it was, it was, it was really, 
it was hard for a very, very long time. And like you said, I didn't, and, and also like my dad wasn't act. He, he also wasn't like out here trying to win the father of the year award. He was very much the homie, you know, like I, when I went and hung out with my dad, I was hanging out with a homie, like the coolest person ever. Like the, also you're my dad. Like I'm watching you at three in the morning in a jazz club at seven years old, like, you know, stealing hearts and, and, um, you know, changing people's lives and falling in love every week with a, you know, a different admirer, um, which wasn't normal. Like that, that was the, that was the equivalent of going to a baseball game with my father was going to the club and hanging out with musicians. Yeah. I feel like, uh, for me, I, uh, my, my biological father left me and my mom when I was like six months old and I, I was pretty much raised by technically my stepdad but like the guy who i call my dad and like really had no relationship i've like i only have two or three memories of like my bio dad of like my entire life right so growing up i always kind of thought like that he's just out there and that he has parents and siblings and like a whole other side of me that's just kind of out there that i don't know and was like kind of causing some confusion for me as to like oh i'll never be able to fully understand myself or like unlock all these pieces of myself until I know him and, and until I know that side of the family. And it, and it kind of, I just feel like as a kid, like one of the worst things you can be is just confused. Like <laughs> you don't know anything about the world. And like, we have these people who bring us into this world that we don't get to pick to like show us whatever blueprint they show us. And then it's either just like what they show us, what we see on movies or TV. And then like, that's, that's our idea of it. And then we spend like literally the rest of our lives just unpacking that and working through it and trying to understand it. But I don't know. I, I feel like the biggest thing that, that I've learned from it is that like at the end of the day for me, it, it is just the experiences that I've had and like how I value them and internalize them and look at them and like the more vulnerable with myself that I'm willing to be and like go to those places and not be scared of them like not be ashamed or mad at my dad that he left uh, me and my mom like that's cool that's just like my situation let's talk about it it gave me a fear of abandonment it gave me all these things like let's put it out all out on the table and be able to learn more about like who and and why we are you know that's like that's our power and i view that as like my superpower to like take back control of instead of like blaming or like saying it was unfair that you were exposed to all that stuff as a kid you know it's like not nah, like that that's that's what happened and and that's why you're here or where you are like to me it's like it's awesome the story i wouldn't change i wouldn't change any of it as difficult as uh as it was to navigate because this is what it what, what it produced and you said something that was really key like the second that i realized that vulnerability is actually power and that everybody else um is masquerading with fear as, as actual power. That's when I really started to come into my whole self. That's when I started to realize that, Oh, okay. These are things that took place in my life, but they are also not my story. They don't, they're not the definition of who I am and they don't have to continue to, uh, I don't have to perpetuate and carry th those things that happened on as, as, as that's not my legacy. Every day that I wake up, that's, that's that, that I make new choices. That's where my legacy lies and do my best to, 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 to fail 
to fail well while while getting the wins you know and yeah like once you once you get to that part where you're like oh this 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 shit doesn't have to be the star of my story they it requires that depth and like making peace with it and and building relationship with what happens but that's when you get to live like actually freely and holy yeah the uh my kind of analogy that i've come up with my therapist is like we're all wearing this invisible backpack all the time that we have with us every day. Right. And we all have these different things in our backpack that have different weights and, and different meanings. And like, I used to have all those things that were out of my control, be like the heaviest shit in my backpack that I was just wearing every day. That was dragging me down. That was negatively impacting my relationships and my work. And like that, I always carried with me of like, Oh, like your life sucks, dude. Like all these shitty things happen to you. It's so hard. And like, once I've started to take some of those things out of my backpack and just like physically feel lighter and better and just like, that's not on me. Like it, it's, it's been life changing. Yeah. You're lucky that you got it down to, to a backpack. Some people are out here with like, with the, with the, the, the 12 set, uh, Louis Vuitton uh, trunks just dragging their shit. (laughs) 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 Trying to get these like these trunks up the Uh, stairs. (laughs) uh, Can't do it. um, The the identity thing I think you said is um, resonated with me. I moved here when I was six. I, I grew up in Italy, moved here, like didn't speak English. Like felt like I really didn't fit in obviously had no friends uh, (laughs) when I I started in first grade. And I was actually talking about in therapy yesterday because I think I don't remember that as much because I was six years old. But uh, I do think that it definitely made an impact on me in how I do things today, you know, like, you know, wanting to be successful or get good, good, good grades or all these things that I did, I think, just to like gain acceptance, which is like what kids do. And I'm wondering for you, like, I'm interested by the dual life thing. It was it was actually something I wrote down here. Like it was interesting because like did you not like the going to church, you know, that side of things or was it more just like you thought that that was like a one way of life and then your dad's way of life was a different way of life and that you just did both or did you find yourself like oh like I just don't like this but I have to do this while I'm here and then I go with my dad and like how was that process um for you i was at war with myself you know the older i got um the more the lines were being drawn like you could fake it until you make it and when i started to come of age of where like all right now my parents aren't making decisions for me anymore i'm formulating who i am you know i I went to this church that every day like told us like you're gonna live forever on this earth and most of the people on this earth are going to die and you got to go and like knock on people's doors and see if they want to join you. And if not, like you can work with them and be friendly with them, but like they're not your friends because they're going to die. And you don't go to their parties and you don't date the girls and you can't have sex and God forbid, don't touch yourself, masturbate or anything like that, or you're just a dead man walking. And so you're having all these urges that are coming up in you naturally. And then like, you you think you're a bad person as a result. And mm. So you pray harder to God to like, ah, why is this happening? And like, you don't realize that it's just, it's just natural. You're just growing up. 
but you can get caught up emotionally in the singing of the songs and feeling like, yeah, maybe we are the chosen ones, etc. And then when I would go and hang out with my dad, I got to see people who were 100% unrestrained, throwing themselves into their creativity, making music and, 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 and being free and, and not being limited by, by the labels of, 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 of what people are or aren't. And it was incredible, but it also came with excess that was clearly damaging. So, I'd, you know, I'd re- retreat back and be like, oh, I guess this is where I'm supposed to be. And then you'd feel that constraint mm-hmm. and be like, I don't want to do this anymore. And Polar I, opposites. Polar, they, they couldn't have been more opposite. And I didn't make up my mind. I didn't make my choice of who I was going to be until I was 28 years old. That's when I didn't leave the church until I was 28. Wow. I didn't. What brought have, you to finally leave? I I knew that I had some. I knew what it, what I wanted to give and where I wanted to play, and I couldn't do both. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had fallen so deeply in love with um, with surfing and snowboarding and skateboarding, and it made made a way within in the industry. And then I started a brand, and then I started getting some time in front of the you know, some opportunities on the in, on the microphone and even on on television. I had a, got a big break. Um, at MTV doing the sports and music festival thing. And I loved it. And I was like, oh, that feels like my, like my whole self. And people were like, yo, you're good. And, but the church is being like, that's worldly. You can't, that's not going to get you into the kingdom. You know, I meet, I meet girls and they're like, Hey, you want to hang out? I'm like, um, yeah, but like, we can't do stuff. You know, like (laughs) it was bugged out. And I'm, t- I'm talking about in my 20s, like you want to keep it a keep it a band. You know, I didn't even get to the place where I could even embark on on figuring out sexuality until like I was 27, 28 years old. Wow. Um, as a result, I was like an 18 year old at 27, 28 years old. Yeah. And I found <laughs> yeah, out some things. Crazy. It was cr- yeah. wild. And then your man's went buck wild like no governor on like yo this is what i was missing and then i had to reel that back in and i spent my 30s like most people did in their early 20s like Mm. figuring making a bunch of dumb choices figuring out what works and what doesn't and building a relationship with myself um into who i am and i think all of it not to mention also like detaching from like 28 almost 30 years of like a certain type of programming and being kept up asleep at night that like with this voice of god being like i see you i see what you're doing you can't run from me and then i like started having wild panic attacks and suffering from debilitating anxiety and was hospitalized four or five times with thinking that I was going to die and like having all the signs of having a heart attack and dying, passing out in my house on the phone, my roommate coming and finding me and like, what, wait, what, what, what happened? And then having to get on Ativan and being a zombie and just being completely confused while also like your career is just starting to explode and everyone thinks like you must have the best life ever. And you're waking up every day, walking around in complete fear 
because I didn't even think that something like anxiety was a real thing. My my thing when people say they're anxiety, you need to get out and like get a hobby. Like that's not a real thing until you're strapped to a gurney, getting wheeled out of the back of a racetrack, a hotel, having a panic attack on camera, live on ESPN and like somehow not passing out and getting through the standup and then like having to go and change your shirt because you just, your whole body is drenched and the stage manager's like, what's going on? You're like, oh, I'm, I'm cool. I'm like, <laughs> man, I was just uh, going to say, I was talking to someone today about anxiety and we were just saying how like, it's so hard for people who haven't identified it yet to understand because having it is one thing, but being able to identify it is a completely other thing of like, there are millions of people who are, probably feeling mad anxious right now who just think it's a stomach ache or they have heartburn or like don't even know what anxiety is until you can actually identify it and and i'm so glad you brought that up because that's obviously something that like the listeners can relate to a lot and really care a lot about and uh just wondering if you could go into that a little bit deeper like was that your first time dealing with anxiety and then after you started having these panic attacks what how did you kind of seek help and and like eventually work to to conquer them a bit yeah or even like figure out what it was because i remember when i like had my first anxiety attack like type feeling like i had no idea what it, what it was i was just like oh i just had a really am bad, i sick am yeah, i like, like i had a really really bad day like i'm i have a fever <laughs> or something yeah you know uh, the first one i had i was on the phone i was living in in santa monica with my cousin sunny who was the other half of Alakazam. And it was like probably like 2004 or five. I had just moved to LA from, from San Diego. And then you find yourself being like a big fish in your town. Cause like I'm about four, three or four years into the X games. I had done the NBA. Um, and suddenly it's like, Oh, time. you're like, you're like a, a household <laughs> name. Like I went from like standing on the side of the half pipe, uh, as a sideline reporter in 1999 to like becoming the host of the winter and the summer X games in three years. And then being sideline reporter for the Western conference of the NBA on ESPN and ABC, like my shit just went, wow. Yeah. And it was incredible, but also like no warning for what that was and what it meant. Plus all the backstory that I was talking about that I was dealing with privately. And I was on the phone with someone. And then I just remember being on the ground and my cousin heard a thud, and that was my body. And I was just laying there with the phone. He woke me up, and I was, I was like, "Yo, what?" He's like, "What happened?" I was like, "I, I don't know." That was the first time. And he's like, "You need to chill," because apparently, like, I was worked up over something when I was on the phone. Then, the next one was what was the full on like, and so I just remember it creeping up. Like, it, it, they would, they would creep up. And the first one I remember just was creeping up this weird feeling. Something's off. And then next thing you know, heart rate. Uh, 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 and you feel like your heart's beating out of your chest. And you're like, what is happening? And then you can't breathe. And then your brain just switches from like reality to like, oh, we're going to feed this story. This is the reality. You <laughs> are dying. What are you going to do about it? And you're like, I'm, I'm dying. Call 911. Call nine one one, and like next thing you know, you're you're the, the the ambulance is at your house. They got you strapped up. 
all the readings that they're having on their shit is that you're having a heart attack. And you're like 30 years old. Like, what is going on? <laughs> Checking everything, pumping you full of shit. Then you get to the hospital and you're like, fuck, is this how I'm going to go? And the doctor's like, uh, you just had a panic attack. Like, what? What does that, what does that even mean? And then it, bec- it becomes like a, like a ghost, like a zombie that lives inside of you. And, oh, and man, I just, I started drinking a lot more because I could drink my way through them. And I was like, well, if I'm wasted, like it won't be able to like actually happen. But if I had the morning on the hangover, I would wake up with, a, I'd usually sometimes wake up straight into one and then I have to pop um, anxiety medication. And that's how, what I started doing. I went to the doctor, you know, Mel, well-meaning doctor, you're like your re- regular practitioner is like, oh, no problem. What do you want? Xanax, Ativan, try both, see what happens. Take I remember pick, sitting yeah. on the couch watching, um, I was watching television. I was watching something super, super funny. And I was on the pills. And I just remember like inside my body, I was laughing, but I was just like, nothing. Yeah. And I was like, wait, I don't think I'm laughing. This is weird. I don't like this feeling. You know, it's like it's like these extremes. Like I'm sedated, but I'm but I'm but I'm up. And after, like I said, being hospitalized four times, my brother had to drive me to the hospital once. My best friend, a girlfriend, and each time feels like the first time. So you don't even know it's the thing that happened to you before because your brain just switches over. And the pills weren't working. I was like, I got to do something else. So I found this like Mr. Miyagi style acupuncturist that my, my uncle taught me about, told me about. He's like, hey, you need to go see, go see this guy. And I did like these intensive sessions with this dude, like an hour and a half every day for like 10 days straight. And then he would stick wow. me under, like he put like 75 needles in me. One time I think it was like 100 and something. And then he would put me under these infrared uh, hot lamps and I would just time travel like gone out of body experience. He'd come and wake me up, take them out, open, opening up, opening up, massage me. And after those like 12 sessions, I was able to start to find some peace. And then I realized like, okay, I think I need to change some habits. Then I started doing therapy. Um, and I stuck with the acupuncture and the therapy. I started working out and I just was, I had the the drugs in case I had an attack, but I stopped taking the drugs to prevent an attack because I didn't like how I felt. And after it took about like five or six years for them to go away, and it was it was it was work. I would have them right before I'd be going live, you know, uh, or what, before I walk out of my dressing room when I was at E. You know, you're sitting in there sweating through your shit. Hair and makeup would have to come in. Like, what happened to you? Like, oh, nothing. I'm just doing push-ups. <laughs> and yeah like that's evolved into you know psilocybin um i've done you know i've I've done plant medicine journeys doing one this weekend with the uh, the grandmother as they say um and just really doing deep sort of explorative work to like get into like the the, the, the caverns and, and the nooks and the crannies and, and see what I can like shed and let go of um, and continue mm. to grow. But um, 
yeah, man, it was a real, real, it's been a real journey in the battle and one that like, I never get too cocky to think like, oh, I kicked that. Like I have yep. Im- immense respect for it. That's amazing. I mean, thank you for sharing all that. Obviously anxiety is just so prevalent today and a lot of people have come on the show and, and kind of talked about their various experiences with it and, and how they've seek treatment and, and all these things. And while all the experiences are different, you know, there's a few kind of common things that I always pick up on, which one is like, the first is you got to have the ability to just like be real with what's going on. And then the second one is always asking for help and like letting the people around me know whether they're my support system or your roommate, your cousin or, or whoever your friend was that, that recommended that doctor, even you finding a therapist is like, the biggest thing for anyone who's struggling is like no one can do this shit on their own and like you're not supposed to it's supposed to be very hard and it's not easy it doesn't happen over a short period of time but like there is a way to get better that that everyone can experience and different things work for different people and it's just about kind of finding what that formula is for you but just telling that one person uh and just reducing the shame around it can really just set you on the track to like change your life, you know? Yeah. Mm. I had no empathy um, until that happened. And then it was just like, Ooh, I, I got all of it. And the first time that you meet somebody who tells you that they suffer from anxiety too, you're like, ah, do you want to be best friends? Best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, I think also what's crazy is like, you can also go through, you know, your whole life story and talk about all the accolades and and everything you've done. I think it's like that part of it doesn't have to come up. You know, it's not like a thing that you have to talk about. I feel like oftentimes on the show, it's like the when your career is going the best, when the most things are happening to you, for you, uh, is like also like when you're feeling your worst. Um, and it's literally comes up almost every episode. And yeah, it's just crazy. Like it's... I, I don't even I don't even know you know what I even wanted to say there, but it's just like uh, well, I think a good it, uh, it's just like yeah a good segue there, uh, which I wanted to talk to you about was like the imposter syndrome stuff because because I heard you talk about that on Rich too and like how you were able to kind of work through it and like still am and like that was probably my biggest struggle of the last year honestly it's just like feel like all this amazing stuff is happening for our company and and our business and amazing collabs that we're doing and collections selling out and opening stores and all this stuff and like I wouldn't feel excited at all like everyone in my life was so much more excited for the things that were going on than me and I realized it was because I didn't feel like I was doing anything like I, I I literally still struggle with feeling like I'm doing anything or that I am responsible for any of these things happening and it's kind of like that anxiety mind that you talked about a little bit of like obviously i can consciously tell you guys that i know that i do stuff but that mind really takes over and like you don't live in reality you have these thoughts and then these thoughts become feelings and then they seem more real and kind of all this shit but i would love to just hear you talk a little bit about your experience uh with imposter syndrome man i didn't even know it was (laughs) that's another thing that like you think it's just you um, that, that <laughs> wakes up every day just being like, today's the day that they all realize that I'm a fraud. 
and they take it all away. And none of what you've been doing this entire time has mattered. I think when I got to the point where I started to realize that like these voices in my head, there's the healthy ones. And then there's the one that like, if somebody that claimed to be your friend said this shit to you, you would punch them in the face. You know what I mean? Like if you had some big win and like payment looked at you and was like, yeah, that ain't shit. (laughs) 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 You know what I mean? You'd be like, bro. He's like, nah, like it's not that it's not that even that whatever. It's like you ain't, you haven't done anything. Those numbers don't mean anything. You know what I mean? Like you'd be like, I don't really know if I can fuck with you, but you allow it within yourself. All day to reign free. This asshole who is just fear masquerading fear of like what's next. Like I think what happened to me is like some really good shit happens and you're like, it's like being on one of those game shows. We're like, would you like to play on for $1.8 million? And they're like, got 500,000 up there. And the audience is like, take it home. You're good. You know, you you can't do any better than this. That's what imposter syndrome is, is this idea that these are just one-offs um, and you can't possibly do it again or continue. What if you fail? All this other shit, you know, and it's somewhere in there, it's supposed to be part of a healthy regulation part of us that keeps us from doing like ultimately dumb shit, but left unchecked. It will tell you all sorts of stories about yourself that you there literally are no receipts for. But you will believe. And so it's building. You can't kill that voice, but you can. What I've learned to do is be like, I see you. But you're not the boss here. Mm -hmm. I'm in charge. This is what's happening. Um, And you don't get to be the loudest voice in this conversation. And it takes it takes work. I think that that's important. I think that's how I've viewed a lot of my various mental health issues is like when they're knocking on the door, it's not a matter of like, we don't open the door. It's like, no, open the door, let them in. They could sit down, but just like make sure you still know who's running the show. And like that, that's exactly what I hear you saying of it's not a matter of like ignoring them or keeping them out. It's like, we're going to bring them in and we're going to talk and acknowledge, but we're not going to turn over the power. No. I think we it's very easy for us to to beat ourselves up to the point where we're like if I don't change, if this doesn't go away, then what am I? It ain't going away. That worst shit about you is yeah. not going away. It's part of the framework of what you're built of. What role would you like it to play? You want it to be in the audience? Or do you want it out here running the show? Is it going to be like the LeBron of your shit? Or is it going to be like up there in the 300 seats? 300 seats, hopefully. Um. Yeah. And that, <laughs> it, 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 it takes, uh, it, and it might take a team. It might take counseling. It might take therapy, whatever it is. You, you know, you have to, you, you got to measure that out and you can't ego it away, but like you can get it so that it's up there in the nosebleeds. A little bit on the opposite end of the, mental health spectrum i'm wondering like when you discovered surfing for the first time you know i imagine the feeling that you had uh was unlike other experiences or probably maybe anything that you had done up to that point i'm wondering if you could share that story surfing changed my life 
as a as a as a young black kid who grew up in Staten Island, New York, with Method Man and the birth of the Wu Tang Clan, that wasn't necessarily. I didn't see that the writers having that in there. But my mom and stepdad, my mo- my mother, bless my mother's heart for like as much as she was like in the church, her hippie heart was bigger, and she needed to get out mm. to California and get with her alternative health wellness crew because that's where it was popping. My mother was looked at as like a weird heretic on the East Coast because. You know, we ate all the all the things that are popular now in food culture, like as far as alternative health is concerned. My house was the beta test for, you know, whether it was tofu or wheat germ. Terrible snacks. Y'all must have had the yeah, worst snacks like in there. Yeah. Opening my lunchbox Peace. at school was an embarrassment because people <laughs> yeah. were like, carob? What? The That's roll not chocolate. That? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but uh, we ended up in Carlsbad and... It turned out that that's what everybody did there. You know, I was in this town that was like straight out of a like a, a Hughes movie, like like just typical Calif, like super California with the day glow, eighties colors and bleach blonde hair and girls coming to school and like denim booty shorts and bikini tops and not getting sent home. And I was like, "What planet is this?" And no one who looked like me. I was in a school of like 2,000 kids, and there were two other kids that were black. They were from neighboring towns. One ran fast on the track, the other on the football field. And they were like, no problem. We'll get you over to our school. Um, and it was just a different world. But um, surfing is what everyone did there. And I was like, all right, well, I want to try this. This seems cool. This really great kid, Justin, took me surfing for the first time. And the first time that I paddled out i did not know what i was doing but somehow made it out into the lineup all the guys were like how did you get out here and i was like i don't know i I had just kept paddling (laughs) and then a a set came and i'd never seen a wave that big before it was like four or five feet and i was like what do i do it's like paddle so i put my head down paddle as hard as i could and i remember this feeling of weightlessness when the wave first picked me up and I'd never seen a wave from this perspective, like being on the top of one. I'm like, what is happening? And then it was just like, whoosh, just being rocket launched down the face on my belly, like bouncing around. And it's like, whoa, whoa, what's happening? And I get to the point where the wave is, turns into whitewater. And I remember the lesson that the kid gave me on the beach, you know, pop up, don't crawl up, pop up. And somehow that first time, I popped up and I just remember looking down and I'm standing and I'm moving on the water and then everything slowed down. I think the total of that ride was maybe three seconds or <laughs> I'm lucky, but it felt like a minute. And when I tell you that that was the first time I felt a connection to a spiritual power, it literally felt like the heavens opened up Something poured out inside of me. I was filled with this feeling. I'm, I'm riding on, on top of water. I'm gliding, and, and the feeling is filling up my whole spirit. And then I fell. I got rolled around in the white water, and I came up, and I stood up, and I just started screaming <laughs> as loud as I could. I was like, ah! And I looked at the board and I looked out like, ah, and that was it. My entire, I mean, to life to stand like, up on your first time like that. 
It's, and I didn't stand up again wild. for like a month. It was a fluke. <laughs> yeah, of course. It was just just enough uh to get pulled in. But and that was it. Like all I wanted to do was consume, find out, learn about this thing. I would go to the library at lunch and read back issues of Surfer magazine going all the way back to the sixties, watch every video, surf, surf, surf. And um yeah, that was it, man. Like that changed my whole life. No, that's dope. That's dope. Um We've had a few, like, uh, we've been lucky enough to have a few athletes uh, on the show. And I feel like just in general, athletes to me right now are, like, leading the conversation on mental health really more than any other industry. And just being so close to different sports throughout your whole life, I'm, I'm curious kind of if you sense that too. And, and if so, why do you think it's, like, the athletes that are really carrying the torch right now over musicians, actors, or, or kind of any other group right now? Well, no offense to to musicians and actors, but they performing what you do as a musician or an actor isn't very life or death. Like when you're out there, it, 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 I mean, it's an incredible. Listen, I've been on stage in front of thousands of people playing music, and it's an out of body experience. But I, if I miss a note, like I'll be fine. Right. There's all sorts of other pressures that come around in the business uh, that we all know of. Um, etc. But the pressure to go out and perform at the highest level using your body to compete against others like you at the highest level and one thing going wrong ending your career, your ability to eat. It's like goes from like a thing that you're passionate about, that you love and that you're good at in the neighborhood maybe playing against your brothers and cousins and then et cetera, et cetera. Next thing you know, people are like, we would like to give you money. That helps <laughs> us make lots of money. Um, and we just need you to go out there and be like as good as you've ever been every day. And if you're doing great, awesome. If not, if you're dealing with any problems, we don't want to know about them because you're fucking up our bag. So get out there and be your best and don't be a, a mortal being because you're not a human. You're a superhero. Go. That's essentially what it is. <laughs> right? Like the, the manner in which like people who've never done it at your level make money just from talking shit about like how you're doing it every day um, and can set the tone for how you're viewed, et cetera, et cetera. The, and then the, the pressure to go out and do that in front of Thousands and thousands of people and millions of people watching on TV. And then go back into the locker room and like try and have a normal life. That's crazy. Yeah. And then may, may do all the work to maintain, you know, and deal with all the things that we don't see that's going on with your body that people don't want to hear about because they just want to be like, yay. It's a, it's, yeah. it's a lot. And for years and years, like, we thought of athletes as being like, oh, they're athletes because they're immune to the pressure. They couldn't possibly, they, they put all that aside. They don't have to deal with that. That's why they're athletes. So we want to be like them. And then you have someone like Kevin Love who's like, hey, yo, um, I'm having, like, mad anxiety attacks, and I don't know if I can come to work today. And people being like, well, you make $17 million a year to shoot a basketball. What, how can that be a thing? Or Naomi Osaka, who's like, you know what? All this shit, the manner in which y'all are asking me questions, 
etc. And and questioning my character, it's a lot. Uh, It doesn't allow me to perform at the highest level, so I'm not going to do it. Who does she think she is? What? I can't believe it. How could she? (laughs) She shouldn't even be allowed to pick up a racket anymore. Can we take it away from her? How dare she? Or... You look at what what what, what happened uh, in in the Olympics, Simone Biles. Woo! Simone Biles is like, hey, you know what, guys? I don't have it today. This has never happened before. Would you like to check the receipts of how many times I've demolished the entire yeah. planet? I can do shit that no one else can do. They don't even let me do the shit that I can do that no one else can do because it would be unfair. Mm-hmm. And she shows up for work one day and says. I can't go. And we descended on her like somehow we could put on her unitard and walk out on the floor or the balance beam or the bars. And like, I I can't believe it. This idea that like, just because we watch people doing shit that we can't do, somehow they're not human beings that are dealing with the same basic shit, as you said at the outset of this conversation that we all have in common um, is wild. And so, yeah, it's how lucky are we that these athletes have decided to be like, you know what? It ain't worth it. There ain't enough money in the world Mm -hmm. that's worth more than me being able to like be good in my heart and between my ears in this very short journey. Yeah. And I think it's like the, the backlash to it is just so sad and stupid, but really what you were saying about people looking at them as superheroes or not human, it's that level of comparison and zero empathy that then people go in a mindset that you have a different set of standards or a different expectation when these people are human, just like you flesh and blood, just like you. And like the thing that a lot of them have shared with us that I find super interesting is like, the relationship between mental health and physical health and obviously they spend so much time with their trainers and and pt and rehabbing and and getting their body right and like knowing that process and how much time and effort that takes has allowed a lot of them to kind of realize oh shit like my mental health is the same exact thing and like i have to take just as much care about my mind as I do with my body and them knowing firsthand more than anyone else, how much care it really takes to get your body right. has them like really started to get their mind right. And like all, all the three people that you mentioned and even like so much more are like so inspiring for us and really for the whole movement and conversation as a whole. So like what, what they're doing is amazing. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly amazing and, and necessary. And that makes it more accessible. Um, to, and safe to have that conversation for future generations. You know, I think some, it's easy for totally. us to get lulled into thinking that because you see somebody doing extraordinary things on your phone or on the television, that somehow like it's the Marvel universe <laughs> and not the real world <laughs> is wild. And also like no disrespect to musicians and actors, etc. Like they're dealing with a different set of, of pressures as well. Yeah. Um, and the mental health is 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 there just as much. It's just that their bodies aren't on the line. Yeah, you definitely don't get a you don't get another take of that of that a game winning three. You can't just run it back. <laughs> yeah, you can't ex- exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Cut. 
LeBron, um, <laughs> you go back up there just past half court and action. <laughs> no, uh, that's not that's not how it's going to go. Before uh, before we wrap up this truly amazing uh, conversation, I'm curious for you what uh, what are you working on? Kind of what are you excited about? Uh, kind of your next couple years or like what you're plotting on? What's good with you these days? Well, I, I am um, I co-founded a brand called Mommy Wata. That is a surf lifestyle brand that is based out of Cape Town, South Africa. Um, we just launched in the U.S. Mamiwatasurf.com, um, and the idea was to like to have a lifestyle company uh, built around surf culture, but through the, through an African lens, and one where like when I was growing up, I I never saw anyone from any of the brands that were like I was supposed to wear to be a part of this thing that looked like me. You know, um, and Africa has more surfable coastline than anywhere on the planet. And surfing is exploding there in Senegal and Ghana. Um, wow. South Africa has always been a place, Liberia, Nigeria, but also like the earliest documented stories of, of explorers encountering, you know, people playing in the waves and navigating the waves in boats and on boards was in Ghana in the 1640s. But we did a really good job historically to make it be like you know the water and the blacks it's just never been for them so now that i'm like no longer like one of the only people of color black people um in, in uh, surfing it's like i i wanted to have a brand that's for everybody but that is through a different lens and through this distinctly um african lens so that's going really well in the way it's been received and I, we put out a book during lockdown called Afro surf. That's a 300 page like exploration through surfing on the continent. This is what it looks like. This is the Afro surf cover. Sick. It's got to get so, a copy of that. That looks, unreal. I will, I will have a copy sent to y'all. Um, oh, yeah. I'll have my publicist send you one. She's on right now. Here's a map on the back um, with all these different surf spots across the continent. And then like these, these, just powerful images that feature mostly black people surfing in a way that like people have just never seen before, mm -hmm. you know? And it's not to be like, it's not like, Hey, we're taking over. It's just like, no, Africa's we, we've entered the chat. The culture history, has, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's history. And it's also, it's modern Africa. Like this is what's yeah. happening. Most people think of Africa as like, Oh, I'd like to go over there and go on safari sometime. Or maybe climb Kilimanjaro or go over and help build a well because, you know, those people are struggling so much. And Africa's lit. Like, <laughs> yeah, Wakanda is, is, the, is the, the idea of fictional Wakanda is like an amalgamation of all modern things that take place in African societies. So mm -hmm. I'm excited that for, the, for this book, we, we started it off as a Kickstarter and then Penguin Random House uh, and Ten Speed Press um, picked it up. We've moved over twenty thousand copies since June. It was New York Times, um, New York Times number one uh, hard copy book for the holidays. And I'm working hard to turn it into uh, an actual show where I take people through Africa and explore modern day Africa. It's it's fashion, it's culture, it's music, um, it's food through this unlikely lens 
of of, wow. of surfing and surf culture. We that'd be a dope yeah. show. Yeah, yeah I definitely a, hope. That. I like that. I like that, that react. I'm gonna bring you guys yeah. on the next pitch. Be like, see, yeah. you saw them. Pause, <laughs> breath, and yes, let's green light. Um, but I'm not happy. Guys love it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and I'm man. I'm also relaunching my podcast. Uh, what shapes us? Um, next week, I'm excited to get back in the mix. Um, oh, yeah. I started Is it during it lockdown. Or? It's interview based. Yeah, it's interview based and. Um, and some stories from the archives, but interview based going to, um, you know, have some of the greats from within the action sports space and have some, some sort of deeper conversations about what shapes who they are, um, as well as people from across the landscape. And I'm very, very, very excited uh, to get that. Amazing. With that. Love well, it. Yeah. Uh, we'll be sure to, uh, link Afrosurf, the pod, uh, and the brand in the show notes, of course. And before we let you go, we have two questions that we ask every single guest. Uh, the first one is if you could nominate anyone to come on the show, whether you know them or not, anyone who's had a big influence on you that has a kind of a powerful mental health journey and story, who would you nominate? Ooh, man, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. My friend Jason, I have a, a my, my buddy is a, is a director He's uh, Jennifer Lopez's like entire creative director for all of her 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 branding shoots all of her commercials. Uh, he's my mm-hmm. best friend of twenty years. His name is Jason Berg. We are best friends because we've been able to support each other's mental health journeys and what he's overcome to get to the level that he is mm. um, with his mental health journey is. His mental emotional health is as as a as a as a father as a single dad as a father. Um, he's the most inspiring human being I know. He's one of my best friends. We had a production company together forever, and um, a conversation with him would blow your mind. His name is mm-hmm. his name is Jason Berg. So Shout I'm nominating Jason. the homie <laughs> at Jason Berg to come on this show, and y'all will not regret it. You'd be like, oh, you'll be like, oh wow, okay, <laughs> Salema was cool, but like this dude. <laughs> This fool, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and lastly, uh, Salema, what makes you mad happy? What makes me mad happy? My friends. The people um, who, who shape me and make me who, who I am. And one, one of the things that I learned during COVID and these tumultuous years of uh, politicism of like basic human rights and ideas is I learned who my associates are and who my friends are. Mm. And I was able to take those people in the periphery and and move them over here and really like consolidate my friends. These are the people who, who shape me. And if I talk to them every two weeks, two months or two years, they remain steady. My girlfriend woke up this morning and she said to me, she's like, I have to tell you something. My love, she calls me my love. Never by my name, it's just my love. If I hear my name, it means I'm in trouble. Uh, she said, I love your friends and everything, every person that is in your life that, that I've met has blown me away and that's what says, that's what says the most about you is these people who are around you. And um, I'm grateful for them. And they make me mad happy. Mm. Well, Salama, thank you so much uh, for coming on. You 
introduced yourself as a storyteller and you've told some amazing stories today. So we're excited uh, to, to keep up and, and watch, uh, you know, the stories you tell next. But thank you so much for coming on. Ah, uh, man. Thank you. And I, I love the brand. I'm copping some stuff. I'm, yeah, I'm we'll definitely blown, get you some I'm, stuff. I'm blown away by what you guys are doing. Like it's it, literally I found it mad invigorating. I was like, <laughs> ah, yes. Like I heard of the brand. I've seen this shit around, but I'd never like been on the site and like gone deeper. And um, yeah, man, I'm stoked for you guys that you're what you what you're doing and how you're building it is necessary and hopefully will inspire inspire others uh, to to do more than just um, engage in commerce and and build totally. build sustainable community. Thank you, man. Well, we appreciate that. And uh, again, thanks for coming on, and we'll talk soon. Right on. To be continued. Thanks, everyone. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you made it to the end of our longest episode so far, uh, hopefully that means you enjoyed it. As always, check us out. Please give us a follow on Spotify if you're enjoying the show. You can give us five stars there now too. Uh, Also check us out on Apple Podcasts. Uh, As always, could use reviews, five stars. I just really appreciate the support. Keep the questions coming and we'll talk to you guys soon. We also want to remind everyone and ourselves that mental health is an ongoing process and is something that takes daily work. For more information on how to get support, please check out localoptimist.com backslash podcast. The Mad Happy Podcast is brought to you by Optimism.